Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke 20, 19 to 26. Luke 20, 19 to 26. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, I thank you for a beautiful day outside and a wonderful day to come in and worship you. I thank you for communion as we remember that your son took the fall and we walk free. If we have a relationship through faith in your son Jesus as Savior. We thank you for your inspired and errant word and we pray, Father, that as we look at a passage out of Luke, that you would speak to our hearts, that we might know the mind of Christ, that your spirit would guide what we think about this text, and that we would be not just hearers of your word, but doers as well. Speak to us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. We pray all this. Amen. Today, you and I will take a look at a biblical text, and at first glance, it seems to be all about taxes. What a wonderful topic. Hmm. But actually, the text is far more profound than just about taxes. I want to introduce it, though, with a few cartoons, six to be exact, on taxes. You can't deduct Starbucks as a workspace. I have some young friends that would think otherwise. Two wishes, what happened to the other one? The IRS takes it off the top. They do. None of this makes any sense. It's almost as if they don't want me to understand. Maybe that's why they call it the tax code. I like this one quite a bit. Gilbert reaches a pivotal moment on his tax preparation software, trying to figure out how much jail time he's willing to serve based on the answers he's thinking of giving. Which goes into this one. What's the worst thing that can happen if you cheat on your taxes? Free room and board for the rest of your life. And then my very favorite one, tax deduction. That's my favorite because, well, I'm into babies these days. <laughs> I'd like to uh, share a few statements that famous people have made on taxes. And as I make the statement, I want you to think, who said this? And then I'll give you the answer. It is a paradoxical, tr paradoxical truth that tax rates are too high today and tax revenues are too low. The soundest way to raise the revenues in the long run is to cut the tax rates. John F. Kennedy. That would be surprising, wouldn't it? The taxpayer. That's someone who works for the federal government but doesn't have to take a civil service examination. That would be Ronald Reagan, who you probably guessed made the first statement. I'm proud to be paying taxes in the United States. The only thing is I could be just as proud for half the money. <laughs> Arthur Godfrey on the American radio. In 1790, 
the nation which had fought a revelation, a revolution against taxation without representation, discovered that some of its citizens weren't much happier about taxation with representation. LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson. The hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. That would be Albert Einstein. <laughs> now, if you noticed, I mixed political parties, so I was not making a political statement whatsoever. I was just introducing our tax for today. Let me pick up and read the text from Luke 20. I want to read verses 19 to 26. Luke 20, starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. As you and I begin, we notice that several groups are attacking Jesus. There's a little bit of tag team wrestling going on. The interesting thing is that the groups that are attacking Jesus have almost nothing in common one with another. Although this text gives us fairly nondescript priest and chief priests, a parallel passage in Mark 12 identifies several of the groups as the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we have to understand that the Pharisees hated the Herodians, and the Herodians hated the Pharisees. But there was someone they hated even more than one another. They hated Jesus. So these strange bedfellows hook up one with another, and they attack the Christ. They send in spies. They're looking that Jesus might say something or do something by which they can undermine his popularity among the populace or charge him among the Romans. Now these two groups working together would be akin to the following. What would happen if we had CNN, CBS, HuffPost, the Colbert Report, and Washington Post working with Breitbart, Rush, Fox, Hannity, and the Drudge Report? Never the two shall meet. Or what about Pelosi, Schumer, Baldwin, Sanders, and Warren working with Carson, Cruz, Fiorina, Halley, and Rubio? Not likely. Now we might wish these individuals would work one with another for the betterment of our nation, but the truth of the matter is they work against one another constantly, sometimes to the detriment of our nation. 
Well, that's the relationship of the Pharisees and the Herodians one to another. Pharisees were religious lay leaders, but they were nationalists. They were individuals who always thought Jew first, Gentile not at all. They hated Rome. They wanted to drive out the Roman Empire. Herodians, on the other hand, they were followers of Herod. They didn't really like Rome, but they were Jews that had learned to capitalize on the Roman occupation. Far from being nationalists, they thought, let's make the best of the situation and let's make a profit on the situation. So Pharisees considered Herodians traitors and Herodians considered Pharisees Pollyannas who didn't face reality. The two hated one another, but as I said, there was something or someone they hated even more. They hated Jesus. So they begin to attack Jesus. The first thing they do is try false flattery in verse 21. Flattery is the evil twin of gossip. Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. And so there's flattery going on, and they say, Jesus, you are always right. Now, they have never spoken truer words. The problem is they didn't believe the words. They were setting Jesus up. They were hoping that Jesus would let down their, his guard and the spies that they had sent in would find Jesus doing something or saying something that could divide his popularity from the populace or something to charge him among the Romans. And so they asked Jesus a question. It's not a softball. They ask him about taxes. This is a hot potato, and taxes in any generation always divides the populace. Jesus, they said, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Now think about the question. We have two groups present. We have nationalists, and we have those who work in accordance with Rome for their own profit. Is it profitable to give Rome tribute? No, it's not profitable, but is it legal? That's the question. Now understand that this puts Jesus in a particularly difficult spot. When Jesus was a young boy in Nazareth, a number of Nazarenes refused to pay taxes to Rome. And Rome came to Nazareth and destroyed Nazareth. In fact, they murdered most of the men. We don't know where his father Joseph went, but highly likely his own father was murdered by the Romans as a part of this stomping out of Nazareth because some of the men, maybe his father, maybe not, some of the men refused to pay tribute to Rome. So this might be a quite personal situation for Jesus. There is a high probability, a very high probability, that his own father, his earthly father, was murdered as a result 
of some not paying tribute to Rome. Although still in the future, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple from AD 66 to AD 70 is partly because of a failure by the Jews to pay tribute. You can read about both accounts in War, written by Josephus, the great first century historian of the Middle East. Now understand that Rome charged a fair amount of taxes. They would charge an individual 10% of all the grain of the field, 20% of the vineyard, 20% of wine produced. There was a customs tax, kind of like a sales tax, that was 2% at the low end and 5% for most. And in addition to that, they had a poll tax. Anyone from the age 14 to 65 had to pay a tax each year just for the right to breathe air. Well, let's not tell the IRS about that. They don't need any help on taxes. The average Roman paid between 33 and 38% of their income up front to Rome to the occupier of their nation. So when Jesus is asked about taxes, anything he says could get him in trouble. If he says, don't pay tribute to Caesar, it could cause another calamity like what happened in Nazareth when individuals, maybe his father, was put to death. It also would uh, incite the Herodians who have profited from Rome's infiltration of Israel. If he says, you know, you ought to pay taxes, he's going to please Rome, but he will displease everyone else. No matter how he answers the question, there are going to be problems. But Jesus doesn't play politically, and he doesn't play to the populace. Jesus plays to his father. Jesus speaks what is true. He speaks what will be written later on in Romans 13, 1 to 7, that we are to pay honestly that which we are required by a nation. So Jesus makes this statement in verses 24 and 25. He says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I love this. This is so clever. I have no idea if Jesus has a denarius on him or not. But he's not letting on if he does. So he says to the Pharisees, show me a denarius. Can you imagine how embarrassing it is to the Pharisees, these nationalists, as they're reaching into their tunic and they pull out a Roman coin, a coin of the occupier, Jesus already has taken them down a little notch. And understand what is written on a denarius. It'll be on Latin up there. I will give you the uh, translation. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Augustus means majestic. Son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. Tiberius Caesar Son of the God who is majestic, who is majestic. That is what is written on the coin. 
these Pharisees who are trying to test Jesus are walking around with little idols in their pocket. And Jesus has the wherewithal to make them pull one out to show them a coin to answer their question. Now Jesus gives us some profound understanding of how Christ's followers are to interact with our government. I think it will be three words. Pay, pray, obey. Pay, pray, obey. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Pay what we are required to pay because that is honoring God. Pay what is owed. Romans 13, 7 puts it this way. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. When we are honest on our taxes, we honor the Lord. Pay. The second is pray. God calls for us to pray for those who are in authority over us. Not in this text, but let me read from 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we are called to pray for first responders. We are called to pray for who is in the White House. We are called to pray for who is in the Senate, who are our representatives, the 435. We are called to pray for governors. We are called to pray for local and state authorities. We are called to pray for the judiciary. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's convicting because I wonder if I pray more or I complain more about the individuals that God has placed in authority. Sometimes to bless us, sometimes to bring judgment in our lives, but God says he has placed these people in authority, and my job is to pay, my job is to pray, and my job is to obey. Let me again read from Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resisted what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's a remarkable statement. Because Paul is writing to the Romans at the time in which the Roman Empire is morally bankrupt, ethically bankrupt, and spiritually polytheistic and pagan. And yet, God has Paul write that we are to obey the governing authorities. Sometimes we say, well, it can't get any worse than it is now. Actually, if you read first century Roman history, it was worse then than it is now. We're rapidly catching up. But it actually was a more perverse society then than it is now in 21st century America. And yet we are told to pay, we are told to pray, we are told to obey. Is there a point in which our obedience ends? Yes, Scripture gives us a great example in Acts 5, verse 29, 
when the authorities come to Peter and other apostles and they command Peter to stop sharing the gospel, salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And you remember in Acts 5, 29, what Peter says, is it right to obey God or to obey men? And then we're given the clear example that they go on to proclaim salvation. That is, they disobey the government because there is higher law, there is God's law, and though we are dual citizens, if we know Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and if we are American citizens, we're citizens of this great nation, we're dual citizens, there's a higher citizenship to the kingdom than there is even to our country. Pay, pray, and obey. Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. But that's not all he says. He goes on to say, render unto God what belongs to God. It's interesting. He actually uses a word for image, icon, which is actually the same word he uses back in Genesis 1.27 in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, where it says that you and I are made in the Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. Male and female, he has created us. So Jesus says, render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Render under God what has the image of God. Who or what has the image of God? We do. And so there's a limited rendering to Caesar... There's a 100% rendering to God. Because we are made in the image of God, we are to render ourselves fully and completely to God. There is a higher level of commitment to the kingdom of God than any kingdom of man. Render the part that belongs to Caesar to Caesar. Render the part that belongs to God to God. What belongs to God? We do. We are made in his image. The same word is used back in Genesis chapter 1 that is used here. We are image bearers. And because we are image bearers of God, we are to render ourselves, all of ourselves, to God. As we think about this text, I want to make three applications. First, we're going to talk a little bit about the role of Christ followers, the church, and politics. Hmm. Now I wish somebody else were preaching. You know, if you want to start an argument, talk about either politics or faith. If you want to start a war, mix them. That's what I'm about to do. Because Jesus did. As Americans, I think it would behoove us to remember that the epicenter of our faith and the epicenter of our lives is not at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Sometimes we act that way. But the epicenter of our lives is God. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. We are kingdom, or we are part of the kingdom of Caesar here in America, the United States, as citizens, but render to God what belongs to God greater than our citizenship in the United States is our citizenship, if we know Jesus, in his kingdom. 
there is a world of difference for how we act as individuals in the kingdom here in the United States than how as the church, the bride of Christ, ought to corporately act. There's a world of difference. Frankly, the church has not done well when the church has become political. In fact, the church has done very poorly. Think about the Crusades or the Inquisition. Or think about slavery or about apartheid. We have done particularly poorly. The low points in our history has been when we have tried as the kingdom of God to mix it with the kingdom of man. If we're honest, brutally honest, what happens often is this. We align ourselves with a political party. And then within that political party are highly immoral, unethical, ungodly women and men on both sides of the aisle and independents. But because they're part of our political party, we dismiss the way they act because they're part of our political party. Now, maybe as individuals we can do that, but as Christ followers in the church, we ought not. And when we do so, we sully the name of Christ, who holds all people to exactly the same standard, regardless of political affiliation. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, render to God the things that belong to God, The bride of Christ belongs to God. It does not belong to Caesar. Having said that and believing it, when Caesar comes into the things of God, we stand up for the things of God biblically. For instance, the right to life is a biblical issue long before it was a political one. If politics come into a biblical issue, the church rightly stands for life. Psalm 139 far predates anyone who says that that which is in the womb is tissue but not life. Morality is a biblical issue. Intimacy is between a husband and wife and a marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians 6. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, they predate the new morality that permeates our land. The definition of marriage goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. One man, one woman, a husband and wife in a covenant relationship with the Lord. So when Caesar comes into biblical issues, We have the right, we have the obligation to teach biblical truth. Caring for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It is a biblical issue. 1 John 3 and Proverbs 19.17 and a plethora of other passages. It's not about supporting a party. It's not corporately as a church getting involved politically. But when Caesar comes into biblical issues, the church rightly should respond, not politically, but biblically, to say this is what God says 
God has spoken, we believe it, and we support biblical truth. Our second application is to remember what we individually, as citizens of the United States, have as obligations to our country. I've mentioned three, pay, pray, and obey, and I'll mention a fourth, sway. Pay, we're commanded, Luke 20. In Romans 13, we're commanded to pay taxes to Caesar. Pray, 1 Timothy 2 says, to pray for all those in authority, kings and those in high places. I need to be praying for leaders whether I appreciate them or I do not. Whether they're Republican or Democrat or Independent or Socialist, whatever is in our country, I need to pray for leaders. And obey. As long as biblical conscience is not violated, Acts 5.29, I need to obey a government, whether I find it to be moral, ethical, or not, as long as it doesn't command me to violate my conscience, I need to obey. And then as an individual, I would add the word sway. We're told to be salt and light, aren't we, in Matthew 5. And so I have a right as an individual, I don't believe as a church, but as an individual, I have a right to sway things through my vote, through writing to my leaders, through other means, a right to sway people as my conscience dictates. And finally, the last application is this. We are image bearers. The greater call in the text is not to the kingdom of man, it's to the kingdom of God. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Render to God what bears the image of God. We bear the image of God. God created us as image bearers, marred now by our sin, but we are image bearers nonetheless, and God claims all of us. Our highest allegiance is to his kingdom, which starts with a personal relationship with Jesus, when we recognize that we are sinners in need of saving, and by faith we ask Christ, his death to pay for our sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, and we believe by faith in Jesus, and he grants us eternal life, he cleanses us, and we become part of the greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, render to God, what belongs to God, we belong to God. In other words, our life, first and foremost, must be all about God and God's kingdom. That's what Jesus taught from one little coin. Let's pray. Father God, uh, a hard text. Hard because as a nation, we could hardly be more politically divided. We could hardly have issues more divisive and painful. And emotions run high. But Father, uh, we want to be the best citizens we can. To pay and to pray, obey and to sway. But more than that, we want to be the best citizens 
of your kingdom, which means obeying the, the prior and exalting you. Father, help us to remember the purposes of the church, to glorify you and to worship you and to pray and to read and teach your word, to be a refuge from the world and to go out into a world and serve and minister and share the gospel. Help us to remember the purposes of the church and to live them out. Father, it's remarkable that we are stamped with your image that you have claimed us as your own. And for those who have received Christ as Savior, you have made us your own. And we praise you and honor you. And if there's someone here today that does not know your son, we ask that by faith they may truly now believe in Jesus. <coughs> ask your son, his death, to be the payment of their sin as we all must and to be cleansed as we all need. Thank you for the provision of our sin through Jesus and faith in him alone. And Father, may we live out your profound text for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said in last service, um, he should have preached just a couple months ago so that we'd have a little more joy as we did our tax returns, right? Anyway, let's uh, stand and uh, end our time just worshiping and proclaiming the greatness of God before we head out and serve him this week.